All right, well, I'm actually going to pick up, uh, we left off uh, right at chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 23, and there's some chapter divisions here that obviously are added later on, and that tends to break things up in our minds where it's not necessarily broken up in time or broken up in the narrative. And so the narrative flow seems to be separated by uh, a chapter division, which it is, but it's not really at the same time. So I, I needed you to connect what happened last week or ongoing to what's happening now and this week because it's going to give another contrast. There's another situation where we have somebody in power who is being opposed. But I want to talk this morning real briefly about the idea of being called out. Uh, the idea of being called out has a lot of different connotations. And called out can mean that uh, you're somewhere uh, in public and you've done something wrong and you get called out for doing something you shouldn't be doing or doing something inappropriate and, you, and somebody says your name and suddenly you're embarrassed, right? And you know trouble's coming because you got called out in that sense and you've been embarrassed publicly because you've been named in front of everybody else. But it can also mean that you've been called out from a certain group of people to come and join something, right? Or to... to, to uh, to go from one group to another. So you've been called out of one group to go to another group. Um, I, I, uh, I told the story about how I've, I've just gone to calling our family Team G because they know when I say that, that's me paging the family because we've been talking too long or we hung out too long somewhere. I've read a statistic, and I don't know if it's true, but i got to tell you guys. It says people that leave parties without saying goodbye save two days a year. Can you, the Irish goodbye is just go and don't say bye to anybody. I'm like, what happened to Mitch? I don't know. I think he left like an hour ago. Anyway, I don't know if the statistic's true, but that's amazing. Two hours a year by just leaving without saying goodbye. Because you know when you start saying goodbye, it just, it's forever, right? Okay, so anyway, um, I was thinking through how we went about naming our kids. And uh, your first kid, you've got a list of names and potential names, stuff you like, stuff that you, you might have to use because you, you want to use it because it's a family name or whatever. And so we named Jaden. Uh, our firstborn, Jaden Riley, because it has the first initial of both of our names, but I also secretly like the idea of calling him Junior, which Rebecca did not like at all, and so I've never, I've never gotten to call him that. Um, instead, when he was a little kid, I just called him uh, things that uh, he did a lot, so I called him Stink and Poop and Booger, and uh, that didn't last long, and Rebecca even said, you, this, you can't call him that forever and ever, because I come home and be like, where's the Booger? And uh, so anyway, that was just when he was a little guy. And then um, Eva... Uh, her nickname is, is Bear. I usually call her Bear. In fact, I use Bear more than I use Eva because it goes both ways. If she's in a good mood, she's a cuddly, lovely, nice teddy bear. If she's in a bad mood, she's a grumpy bear. And so I call her Eva Bear. And then Brecken actually got named by uh, my brother-in-law. He called Brecken Brecker the Wrecker. Brecker the Wrecker. And that fits his personality. If you know him, he's loud, exuberant. And uh, we have friends in uh, Wichita and uh, he was the same, uh, we, we had, they had kids and they, they used to play a lot. And uh, if you watch the, the sitcom Seinfeld at all, they took to calling him George, George Costanza, because he would just, he just blows up sometimes and he's so loud. And it's not even, he's not mad, he's just loud. He's very animated. And so we have Brecker the Wrecker, Eva Bear, and Jaden, whatever you want to call him, uh, that might have to do with bodily functions. But um, so they, they don't necessarily... They didn't grow into those names. I named them after the fact about something that they were doing or something that took to their personalities. But in Scripture, we, we uh, see that naming comes about a little differently, and it has much more significance than that. It's, um, it's, it's significant in the fact that God gave to Adam a task, and he said part of your management 
that I'm going to give you as stewarding this creation is to name the animals. And so that's sort of the first thing that he does. He names all the animals. And it shows that he has like dominion or authority or some kind of responsibility over this creation. So I, I, tend, I, I think when, when I say authority, you immediately jump to authoritarian and think the negative side of it. But there's more to that as we talked about last week. Because there's no authority except for God's authority. And when he's given it to somebody for a particular purpose, that means they're stewarding it, which means it's borrowed and there's going to be an account for it. Okay? So Adam has to give account for the stewardship of creation. But when uh, he's given a, a woman, the wife, he names her as well. And she says her name is Eve. And then she became the mother of all living because that's the name Eve means. And so God had named Adam, which means man. And, um, but throughout scripture, there's many significant names and renamings. God renamed Abraham to Abraham because he's the father of many nations. He renamed Jacob, which means heel grabber, deceiver, to um, Israel, which means one who strives with or struggles with God. John was named before he was born. That's John the Baptist. He was told his name needs to be John because he was going to be the forerunner of Jesus. Um, uh, Jesus was named for uh, what he would do. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But his name, Jesus or Yeshua, means salvation or deliverer or delivery of God, or salvation of God. We see Jesus renamed Simon to Peter. That's his nickname, which means rock. And he does this at a significant point in uh, Peter's life. And several other disciples are given nicknames as well. We have the, the, two, two, the two twins, Simon Didymus, Thomas Didymus. That means the, the twins. We have the sons of thunder. And then my favorite might be, I think this one is self-given, but John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, right? And so that's like his own moniker for himself. But he also could have said the guy that beat Peter to the tomb, and he managed to sneak both those in there. But nonetheless, today's text, we see another significant name change. It's the first time that I don't have to apologize for calling Saul Paul, because it becomes that today, and for the rest of the New Testament, he's Paul. And so there's significance to this. It's not just a, um, it's not just a, a literary function. It doesn't just serve for literary interest. It, it's significant because it matches with a significant point in um, Paul, Saul's calling in his life and how he develops into that and what he is as he's called out from being who he was to the person that God called him to be. And so I want to talk this morning about that through uh, Acts chapter 13. So will you pray with me and we'll ask the Lord to help us in our time in his word. God, I pray for our time in your spoken, recorded, inerrant word to us. May this morning be uh, an opportunity to hear your voice speaking to us and calling to us by name so that we can know what it is that you called us to and more importantly that we belong to you. So this morning um, I ask as I always do that you would help me to do what I cannot which is to speak um, spiritual truths and life into our hearts. Father, open those hearts that we might receive your sustenance, that they would um, teach us and um, grow us in your ways, clear our minds of the things that we've brought in here this morning, may we set them on you this morning, open our ears that we might hear you and our eyes that we could see, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we'll be uh, chapter 12. I'll pick it up in verse 24, which is just sort of the summation of the last part of this text about how Herod had tried to extend his hand of power, how he extended his word of power. And then we have a contrast to that because he 
breathes his la- or he, he's eaten by worms and he, and, he, and he dies, right? So this morning we're talking about being summoned, separated, sent, sons, and sight. I love alliteration. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Um, it says, but the, word, uh, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's, that's the standing in contrast to all that we read about how Herod had tried to extend this word of power, that he tried to declare that he was in charge and that he was the one giving life and sustenance. But instead of that, the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with him John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. All right. So let's just walk through this in order. So we see that the word of God increased and multiplied. And then we see that what happens is um, there, we, we see Barnabas and Saul returning from Jerusalem. I just have to stick this in here because there's a debate about it. And you might have to Jerusalem. Because different translations uh, have this word differently, from and to. And so it makes the most sense that they're leaving back from Jerusalem. Last week, Saul, Saul and Barnabas, what's happening is they're bringing the gift from the church of Antioch which was um, to help with the famine that was in the land in Jerusalem. And so they brought that gift to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so it makes sense now that after all the events that we just read about, they're returning back from Jerusalem to Antioch. You guys love this picture. I can see everybody just fixated on it. This is a shepherd calling to his sheep, okay? So now that we've gotten that out of the way. So we also see that they have a new companion, John Mark. And John Mark is, um, his mother is where Peter goes after the jailbreak. It says they're praying at um, the mother of John Mark's house, and that's where that church had been gathered. And so Peter goes there, and he gives the testimony of what had happened, that he had gotten freed. And then he says, tell James and the brothers, and and then he takes off. And so that's who John Mark is, but he's also, we find out, the cousin of of Barnabas. And so um, here they are, and they're returning from Jerusalem uh, back to the church where they've been serving and teaching. Remember, Barnabas goes down to Antioch to sort of investigate what's going on down there as this revival hits. And then he goes and he finds Saul in Tarsus. And he says, oh, I need somebody here to help teach these people. And so they stay there, it says, for a year and they're teaching. And then there's this intervening event that we just read in the last couple of chapters. And it says here that they go back to the church in Antioch. And this is, we found out that the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. And now this is sort of the first time that we just see church being used as a, a moniker in place of those who belong to this sect of the way in any particular location. That was very verbose to just say, this is the first time that church is used to just talk about a congregation of people in a particular area. Why is that? Well, because before it had been centralized in Jerusalem, everything was being sent out from there and dispersed from there. And yes, we got some Samaritans that are saved. Yes, we have Gentiles that are saved. But now we have Antioch is going to become now the like central point of this. And it's referred to as the church. And so this is just your reminder about what the church, that word actually means. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which outside of the biblical context refers to like a, um, here's how they know this. So they find artifacts, uh, and one of those artifacts is a, like a poster or a painting that was posted that was summoning people for a particular um, political party. And it was, there was going to be an announcement about uh, a political party, and so this is how that word is used outside of Scripture. But inside of Scripture, it, it refers to a congregation or a gathering of people, but it literally means those who are called out of something. 
They're called out of something for a particular purpose. Well, in the, the, the example I gave, they were called out from this city to anybody that was going to belong to this particular political movement to summon and come to this meeting. So you see that you're gathered for a purpose, called out from amongst a group. You see that, okay? So that is the literal definition of a church. And so whenever we think about the church, I know we're fond of saying it's, a, it's, it's the people, not the building. Yes, that's true enough, but it's the summoned people. It's the gathered people. It's the called people out of a group for a particular purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, this is Paul speaking about what it means and, and the relationship that the New Testament church has to the Old Testament congregation of Israel in the wilderness. And it says in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. He's, he's talking about us now as the church where we are the living temple of God. But he says, back in the Old Testament, God had promised, I will make my dwelling uh, among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. So God being with his people is what it means for God to temple or dwell with the people. And then he says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters and to, uh, sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he, he's connected uh, several important ideas there. One being called out, separated from among another group, called to himself, and I will be your God, you'll be my people, I'll be among you, and then I'll call you like sons and daughters. That's what you've been called from, to belong to God as sons and daughters, part of the family of God, okay? And so we see here that um, Saul, Barnabas, and John Mark are returning back to the church in Antioch. And it says in Antioch, there are both prophets and, uh, and, and teachers. And then we've got this list of names. And so there's variation and diversity among the people that God is rescuing. We find this out that it's God's intent to unify all the nations in himself by making one new nation. Or he's unifying all kinds of men and women in himself by making one new man. And so, but he's doing that with diversity in place. And so I, I I think we tend to flatten out what God means to be multifaceted. So when we think of God gathering everybody together and calling them his own people, we, we, we smush that and make it into a, a gray, you know, we got all the different colors and we mix them together and now we're all just gray. It's not like that. It's, it's very diverse and multifaceted in the sense that there's all the colors there and they're unified in, in one person, that's Christ, but there's still colors. And so I need you to see that it's God's intention to bring the manifold diversity unified under Christ, who is the head. And so I don't want to take this um, and, and crush it down and flatten it, because then we become an identity, I'm making a word up, I think, identityless mush, an amalgam where nobody is anything, but everybody's everything, right? And that's not, that's not the case. There's specific roles and specific purposes that God has and reasons why he plugs different things in to where he does. And so we find out through this list that there's, yes, both prophets and teachers. And then um, the way that the Greek lists it, it's, it's emphatic that more like Barnabas is serving in this role of actually prophet and, and Saul's more in the role of teacher. That's the, the way that uh, the Greek intends that to be read. And then we find out that there's Menaean, who was a childhood friend of Herod. And now we got this weird thread that attaches this um, to the last chapter about Herod who died. Now this is Herod who was... Um, the one who was responsible for killing John the Baptist, the one who Jesus appears before and is tried at. And so this word here that it says it's childhood friend, um, sometimes um, you would like rent a kid, basically, to be friends with your, your 
kid, if you were royalty, so that you would kind of control who they were friends with and you could um, have that situation. And so that's really probably what it means, more like a foster friend to Herod who, as, as he was a kid. And now we have this uh, guy, Menaean, who's belonging to the church at, at Antioch, and he's prominent in it. And notice that on the list, Saul is the last one listed, okay? And in the Greek, again, grammatically, that's emphasizing his importance or his level of of uh, recognition among this group of people. So think about it here in this, in this moment, as they're returning back, Saul's at the bottom of the heap. He's the last guy on the list, okay? And it says uh, in verse two then, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, so it, it says here, how many of you guys have um, the word that they were, they were worshiping the Lord and they prayed and fasted? Worshiping in your translation? Okay, some say they were ministering to the Lord. How many of you have ministering? Ministering is the better, the better translation here. Uh, worshiping, when we think about it, it's something that we do, but it's... Um, it's not, it's not like dutiful. It's not really attached to anything. It's like a, a, a free will offering to God. That's how we think of worship. And that's not what's being referred to here. It says they were worshiping the Lord or they were ministering to the Lord. The one who's receiving this, this service is the Lord. And so when we think of ministry, we think it primarily as something that I do, right? You're, you're the minister, you're the pastor, and it's something I do to you or maybe something that you do to one another. If I use the word minister, you say, well, yeah, there's some ministering to one another, and there's elements of that, and yes, there's places for that, but ministering here is uh, referring to the whole duty of the entire church. So this, this word here is where we get the, uh, the English word for liturgy, liturgy, right? And so a liturgy just refers to an order of service or the duties that are performed for public worship. And so in this case, it's a word that's constantly used, and it refers to the priest service in the Old Testament. And when you think about what it means for you to be in the church or belong to God, and we hold to something called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers means that there's no rank or class above everyone where, whereby God is served and we are all sort of underneath and beholden to this priestly class to go to God for us, right? A priest serves sort of this intermediary position because you're not allowed to you know, minister in the temple. But that's not the case here. The church in the New Testament and under the New Covenant, because we all participate equally in the Spirit, have access to God directly through Christ. That's the way Hebrews puts it. That Jesus is our high priest, and he's the only intermediary between God and man. Which means you don't come to me to go to Jesus to go to God. Right? I'm not a priest. You are and have as much access to God as I do. And so this really is emphasizing two things. One is that there's duty attached to your belonging. Let me say that again. There's duty attached to your belonging. So when you think of worship, you think it's like a free will thing that I can do or should do or I ought to do or something I can participate in. Rather, I want you to think about it as the fact you've been saved into a class of people called priests. And along with that role and along with that identity, you have duties that are associated with that. And here duties are being mentioned, two of which are, are fasting and praying. Right? We, we get praying as something that we do to service God, to, to pray to him. But fasting is mentioned twice here in this text. And, um, but fasting is never given as a command anywhere in the New Testament. So what gives here? Like why are, they, why are they fasting so much here in this particular place? And I think it's 
holding a place of earnestness here. Because fasting is something that heightens our um, earnestness towards the thing that we're asking or the thing that we're seeking. Uh, we are constantly bombarded with our desires for all kinds of things, right? So right now you're bombarded with your desire to go to the bathroom, get a drink, thinking about where you're gonna eat, right? Like there's so many things distracting you and fasting sharpens your mind towards the thing that you are seeking or you should be fixated on. And so what we see in this text is they're praying towards a specific end and they're fasting because we can be led astray by all kinds of our appetites. And we saw that last week talking about Herod's appetite and the things of the world. And so fasting is holding a place of earnestness here. But also I want you to see that we see a quality, even though there's different roles and different people and um, in this text, but we're all in the priestly class and we see it here in this text. It, it doesn't say that they're all serving and they're all doing the same thing. There's prophets and teachers, and they're, but they're all praying and they're all functioning the same way for the same purpose. But it says that um, the Holy Spirit speaks and he says, set apart for me, set apart or make distinct, separate from the class of people that are serving in this church. I, I need them distinct, Barnabas and Saul, so that even those who are serving um, have a specific purpose and a designation, but we don't see any one person step up among this group initially to say, here's what God wants us to do. That doesn't exist. What happens is the Holy Spirit is the primary mover. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the designation. And, and the word here for setting apart just means he calls them literally to separate away from. Like it's the same word that's used in that Second Corinthians passage. It says, come out and be separate from them. Literally, come and, and be distinct. And so I don't want you to see this as God calling Barnabas and Saul to a new work or a new mission. It's the same work. It's the same mission. It's just going to be the next thing. It's not new. It's next. And so we tend to separate the idea of missions out as something separate from what we are as God's people. But it's not. It's, it's inherent because it's the duty of us to serve God wherever he calls us. And wherever he calls you is what varies. And the way that he's gifted you to serve in that calling is what varies. But when we think about different places as sort of different missions, that's, that's inappropriate. It's the wrong way to think about it. We are just as invested in our mission field here locally as we should be invested in some distant place that we think really needs the gospel. Guys, who really needs the gospel are the people right around you. And you need to concern yourself with trying to find a new mission because that's not what's happening here in this text and it shouldn't be happening today. God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. Okay? He, he does not have a mission for a group of people that are just sitting about trying to do something. He has a church to accomplish his mission. And we don't need to recategorize or change that. I won't take credit for that. I don't know who said it first, but it wasn't me. Okay? So foreign missions is not and should not be looked at as a separate function from the church. It should be inherent to what we are as God's servants. And so the task of those who are serving is to not try and figure out um, your particular calling to your particular place, but to serve in your calling no matter what place you happen to be in. And so what happens in this text is that really it's not a new thing. Um, Saul already knew that he was called to Gentiles, and he knew what he was going to have to suffer for the name. And Barnabas knows that too. And so it's, it's not that this is a mysterious new thing that's being dropped on them. Like if somebody comes to you and says, I think you're being called to the deep, dark jungle of Africa, you, you probably don't need to worry about what they think God's calling you to do, okay? God will call you if he has a particular mission or task 
for you. And so the entirety of this whole thing being worked out where the Holy Spirit says, set them apart, and then we see them fasting and praying, and then they lay their hands on them, and they send them out. That whole thing all together is called being sent out by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy, when, when, um, when, when Paul is talking to Timothy about his, his uh, role as being the pastor of this church, he reminds Timothy not to neglect the gift that is given or, or was given to you, which was given to you through prophecy spoken to you at the laying on of the hands of the elders. So real quick, I, I, I point that out to say this. We see that there's prophets and teachers in this church of Antioch. Here the Holy Spirit speaks, says set apart Barnabas and Saul, and then they lay their hands on them and send them out. Just similar to what um, Paul seems to be referencing there for Timothy is that the act of sending someone out is a prophetic pronouncement on their life that we are sending you towards the mission that God has called you for. And it's not, it's not the prophet telling that person, this is where you're going to go. It is the, the whole church, collectively, the people the whole, that are filled with the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit, affirming their calling prophetically to go and serve God. So serving the Lord, being part of the church, is who we are as God's people. Okay? That's the long and short of it. Verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the, synagogue, in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That word literally means he's like second class to them. He's, he's serving them as, a, uh, as like a household servant would. And he says, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, so real quick, there was no apparent, at least not recorded by Luke, apparent plan to sit down saying, here's where we're going to go, and this is what we're going to do. So why do they end up in the place that they go, and why do they do what they did? Well, I think there's two really simple reasons. Why? Because um, there, there was already connections in Cyprus. And so it made sense to just go someplace where they already knew some people, and there, there was connections. And so when they arrive, though, they don't, like, line on a specific destination and say, here's what we need to do in this place. They just go, and it says they just proceed to go to places that, were, that made sense. So they start in the Jewish synagogues, and they go through, it says, the whole island. And going and mission are, are attached. The, the Great Commission literally says, and going, or as you're going. So whatever it is that you're doing to live life, as you're doing that, going therefore, make disciples. It's the ongoing nature of whatever it is that you're doing that you should find the mission of God. So it's, it's not pinpointing a, a particular destination. In this case, the adage truly applies. It's not the destination, it's the journey that matters. It's not, it's not pinpointing the specific place that you think God has you winding up. It's being obedient in the path to get there, okay? And so keeping the pursuit of God as primary, not the next step. Now, I know that sounds backwards, and I have some qualifiers on that. But the problem about when we hyper-focus on the next step of what it is that we think we need to do, it's usually related logically to some further step down the road. And why I point that out is because if we submit our ways to the Lord, he will direct your steps, right? You, you can make a plan, but your plan should be, I'm going to serve God no matter where, where he takes me. And so that the next step, if you say, God, I need the next step, I need the next step, and you begin to hyper-focus on that, the next step for you is probably connected to someplace down further in your own mind and logically about where you think God is going to have you wind up. And inevitably, the next step will then try to connect you to that destination. And so you're actually fixed on a destination already, even unintentionally. 
And so I want you to see that the, the, whole, the whole point that we should be fixated on is not destination, but being just in God, in line with God's will, submitted to God's ways. If you are walking the path laid by the Lord, you don't have to worry about the next step. If you are walking the path with the Lord, he will give you the next step. What we see here is Saul's been all over the place, right? Jerusalem, Tarsus, Jerusalem, Antioch, back to Jerusalem. Now he's here in Cyprus. Like, it's all over the place. He doesn't line up and say, well, this is the place where I know God has me. And throughout the rest of the missionary journeys, they're just doing their best to follow where it is that God would take them. We're very fond of finding justifications why the destination that we're in or the destination we would like to be at is the one that God's called us to. Let me say that again. We're very fond and we're good at finding justifications why either the place that we're at right now or the place we would like to be is the place God's really called us to. And by doing that, we're sort of manipulating and trying to justify our own wants and desires. And that never proves true, even on the practical plane. It doesn't matter if you think that Denver is going to be the place that you live for the rest of your life. If something changes in your life or your job or and some opportunity necessitates you moving and you go through all the trouble to say something like, well, God's called me here. This is the place I'm supposed to be. There's an awkward, there's an awkward problem here, right? Where you've said, God's done this thing and now I either have to stay and stick it out regardless of where God might be leading you just so that you can stay true to your own word about what you've said. Does, does it make sense? So there's some problems with justifying our, our particular destination. So just some practical words of caution in this realm, okay? Just some bullet points. Don't glamorize a calling or a rival to a particular place. It wasn't, it wasn't here we are at Cyprus, and this is all that God's want us to be. Everybody come to us because this is where God's called us. It was, they got there, and they just started working. They go, they go through the whole stinking island, okay? They're just working through the whole thing. Don't glamorize your rival to a particular place. Don't overemphasize your permanence or need for being there. Um, we all like to believe that we're indispensable and irreplaceable, but we find that after we leave a job, we're very dispensable and so replaceable, right? And that doesn't mean that you're a bad human being. It just means don't overthink your need for a permanence in a particular spot. Do be mindful of the circumstances which brought you there so that you can figure out what circumstances might lead you away from there. Okay? We think about what it is that led up to this particular thing. And, and oftentimes, there's things that you're unaware of that, that made this particular path happen. But if you can try to trace as much of that as possible, then you might know also what would lead you away from it. You should ask the question, in what case will I know that God has another place for me to be? Sometimes we can hang on to a place too long and convince ourselves of their need for us. And by doing that, we delay our arrival to the place where God does have the next appointment or the next place for us to be. So God is constantly going to be moving us along and we should embrace that not a particular place or a particular destination or a particular role. Make sense? All right. So we see that there's this man that they run into, and his name is Bar-Jesus. Bar is simply the Hebrew meaning son, okay? So he's the son of Jesus, okay? Now, if you've missed it throughout this text, we started with a list of names, and we see there's John who's called Mark, and then we see um, the list of names of the people that are in Antioch, and then they go, and we see names, places, and then we run into another guy with a name, Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, who's identified as a Jewish false prophet. 
And I, you uh, get the sense here, it's not Jewish, comma, false prophet. He is a Jewish false prophet. And that is a, a, an important distinction because it helps us understand particularly what he's doing in this place. I'll explain that in just a second. In verse 7, it says, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. So, bar Jesus, he's with the proconsul named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That word summoned is he called for them. He, 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 he wanted to bring them close because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Okay. So the, the, the guy we just got introduced to is Sergius Paulus. He's the proconsul, which just means he's an appointed governor over this province. And Luke is giving us a contrast now in somebody that was in authority, like Herod, and now we have this authority in Cyprus. And we, we're, we're going to look at this man and his response to God's word and his response to God's messengers versus what Herod had done previously. And so Luke emphasizes for us that he's a man of intelligence. And this could mean a lot of things. It could mean that he's like a learned individual. He's academically uh, in, aware of, um, he's, he's schooled basically, right? It could mean that he's wise in his governance of the land. It could mean that he's crafty or shrewd in getting things done. But I think we're meant to attach this by, by Luke's meaning to something like Proverbs 9.10, which says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We're told that this man is intelligent, but he's also seeking the word of God. And that's why he summons Paul and Barnabas. Luke seems to want us to relate this intelligence to his desire to hear God's word. He has what he thinks as an advisor to him, an alleged representative of God. That's Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet. He, he supposedly is representing the Yahweh, the, the true and living God, and here he is in the proconsul's ear and supposedly giving him wisdom, but he finds out that these two men are declaring there's a new word from God. It's like something like, you know, you get those advertisement pop-ups or whatever that says one weird trick to, you know, get it. it's like enticing. It's, it's something that you can find out. There's, there's, a, there's a new bit of information that you could have from this God. And so, being somebody who's after the word of God, Sergius Paul summons Barnabas and Saul. And so, in, um, and now we're going to have this sort of clash between these two words of God. And so in Jeremiah 23, it's just a fascinating text. You should scribble that down. The whole chapter is about false prophets. And in the beginning of Jeremiah 23, um, God's sort of lamenting the problem in general. And he says this, both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. Even, even the people that are supposed to be speaking for him, even the people that are supposedly serving him are, are wicked. And he finds wickedness in them. Why? Well, in verse 12, he says, because they're speaking words that are not my words. And he goes on to say, their path will become slippery. And then he says, importantly, they will be banished to darkness. And there they will fall. I will bring disaster on them. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets say who are prophesying in my name. So perk your ears up. God is saying prophetically through Jeremiah at this moment, these people that are supposing to speak for me, I have heard what they say as they're prophesying in my name. They speak lies. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. 26, how long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think 
the dreams that they tell one another will make people forget my name just as it did for their ancestors through Baal worship. So false worship is what he's leading these, what, what was being promoted by these prophets who were declaring to speak for God and saying, I've had a dream. This is what you're supposed to do. In verse 28, it says, let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord, is my, not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. My word accomplishes things. It's, it's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. That has a, a very specific word picture in mind here. And now we find out that Bar-Jesus is actually called by another name, which we hear is Elimus or Lemus. I don't know how you particularly prefer to pronounce that. But here's what his name means. Now, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean this in, uh, in Hebrew. It, it goes back to the Aramaic, and it means wise or learned. And then you can see that prefix L is just the generic word for God. So think about it in this sense. His name, as he, he perceives his reputation, his title is something like the one who's wise or learned in the ways of God. And here he is speaking as a false prophet for God. And then he's applied to this um, specific vocation of, of Magi. Now, we met Simon Magus in, I think it was Acts 8, right? Where he's performing like tricks and he's got the people captivated. This is a totally different word. This word is the same word that's used of the Magi who go and visit the Christ child. And if you do some research into that, it's something like they were aware of the prophecies and what they said is they, they'd followed the star. So there's something related to the fact that they're able to observe what's going on and, and follow the prophecies because of the um, astrical, astrological things, right? So these are Zoroastrian priests is what the speculation are as the Magi. That is what Elimus is doing. He's sort of given, he's giving the proconsul horoscopes and proclaiming those to be the word of God. This is, this is what he's doing. And, and so this is what they're up against. And we find out that he opposes now Barnabas and Saul coming and from, from hearing the word of God. And um, it says that he wanted to turn them away from the faith. In um, the Lord of the Rings, there's this character named uh, Wormtongue, right? And, he, and he, he's in the ear of the king and he's, he's corrupting the king's knowledge here. And he's all, you can see the king looks all bad there, right? And grizzled and everything. And then when the... Uh, uh, I just lost his name. Anyway, he, the, the wizard shows up and he, and he bandishes uh, Wormtongue and the, the king comes back to his senses and rules this way. And so um, what, what he's trying to do, what Elimus is trying to do is interfere and pretend to speak wisdom or the words of God. And this goes back to what we were presenting last week, the idea of the fact that people and ideas are the manifestation of spiritual realities. People and ideas are the manifestation of spiritual realities. So here we have a guy who is promoting like a godless ideology. He's a false prophet. He's leading them, leading him to false worship. And so we struggle against these kinds of ideologies and these kinds of ideologies and people that, are, that run counter to God's truth. And we do that by declaring God's truth, not by killing the False prophet, right? God will handle them. He'll, he'll um, judge them and, and bring his own justice to them. We're told to fight or struggle against these things by way of the truth, by prayer, by speaking with the sword of the Spirit, 
which we're told has the ability to topple strongholds. So what he's seeking to do is turn the proconsul away from the faith, which if you think about it, is the, the literal inverse of what repentance is, right? Is to turn away from sin towards God. That's what repentance is. He's, he's wanting them to, to the proconsul to repent from faith. He's trying to turn him away from faith back towards false worship. In um, uh, Matthew uh, chapter uh, 13, when Jesus is telling the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils, he says there's, there's the, the pathway. And when the seed falls on the pathway, and when he says it's like when somebody hears the word of God, but the evil one comes and snatches the word so that they don't receive it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 18 says, as Jesus is explaining the parable to the disciples, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one has come and he snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is what's happening in this particular case. He's attempting to subvert and steal the word of God that Barnabas and Saul have come to proclaim. And so we battle against this. We see um, Saul going to do this by way of the word of God. So here's Saul responding to this in verse 9. But Saul, who was called Paul, that's the bing. Okay, finally, this is the first time the name change happens. Saul is being called Paul. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looks intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you you ever have an opportunity to use this phrase, God bless you, right? You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Okay. Saul, Saul's name uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, Saul means small, or Saul means um, uh, desired, I'm sorry, but Paul is his, his Roman name or his Latin name, and that in Latin means something small, so he goes from the one who's desired to the humble one. And we see that being true throughout Paul's um, whole ministry here. And he, we have this name change and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he gives this excellent response to now what he calls him is the son of the devil. Okay, so get the flow of the name changes here. We're introduced to the son of Jesus, the son of salvation, Bar Jesus whose name is Elimus, or one who's learned or wise in God's ways, but he correctly identifies him and calls him, no, you son of the devil, okay? He's, he's correctly identified, he's rebuked him and said, you are the son of the devil, not of Jesus, not of salvation. And he uses this rebuke that is very, uh, it's a harken back to the prophecies of Isaiah about the forerunner of Christ, who was John the Baptist, he says, will you, stop making, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? In Luke 33, speaking of John, it says, He went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. He's talking about the preparation for the way of Christ. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, every crooked Things shall be made straight. Every rough place shall become level. And then really interestingly, in verse 6 of Luke 33, it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay, emphasis here on, on seeing and perceiving the vision. And now Saul's response, now Paul's response to him, you son of the devil, will you not quit making um, the crooked, the straight paths of the Lord? And he says this, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him 
by the hand. Um, you've probably forgotten at this point, but Luke, who writes Acts, is a physician, and he uses like medical terms here, and he, it's a progression. He goes from a mist to full darkness. He goes from having some amount of perception, well, he had full perception, right? And then he goes a little bit less and fully into total blindness. It's literally the reverse of what Jesus does when they lead the man out of the city, and he puts the mud on his eyes, and then he remember he sees like men like trees, and then he, he heals him all the way, and he can see everything. It's literally the inverse of that same miracle. He can see Everything. And then when Saul and Barnabas come and they declare the word of the God, he has the word of God. He has a little bit of perception. And then he, the result of that is he becomes a little bit darkened in his perception. And then eventually to full darkness where he must seek somebody to lead him about by the hand. Which is the, the total reversal of what happens with getting spiritual sight. He's, he's going the other direction, if you will. To those who are deaf and blind, it is their own condemnation spiritually. It's not that God did, did not give Elimus the opportunity to recognize his word of truth. Saul and Barnabas come and they declare what really is the word of God. And because of that, the, re the response to that is to, to recoil and resist and push that away. In John chapter 3, um, John speaks of it like this. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. When the truth comes and light exposes what's in the darkness, there's two responses. It's either you're exposed and you go further into the light so that all things might be known and you can live in the truth or you recoil and run away from those things. So you go from some amount of darkness to further darkness or into the light. And verse 20 says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's taking place exactly in this text. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. As, as Saul pronounced, or Paul now, right, pronounced this, this judgment on, the hand of the Lord will be on you, will be able to, you without sight for a time. The proconsul sees this, perceives something different about the word of the Lord that's been declared, not about the miracle, not about the, the curse here, which is just by way of, for people that are like, hey, you know, I can work miracles for the Lord. I haven't seen anybody striking anybody blind. It just hasn't happened yet. Like, if I want to see that if you're a modern-day miracle worker. So none of this stretching legs out anymore. Um, all right. Then, uh, so, so he believes. And he's astonished. Well, he's astonished because Paul is declaring a true word versus the word that he's been hearing from this Bar-Jesus, this false prophet. And the true message is repent and believe. It's the same declaration that's been declared all throughout the, the, uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant. In Romans 10, 17, we find this out. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The Word. The Word of Christ that's declared here. So we, we see the, the reversal of this as there's true uh, identities being exposed as people are coming into the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has called them to. When Saul's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's Paul at this moment, and he rebukes and identifies correctly what's going on. Then he declares the word, and then the proconsul believes. He comes to faith. In Isaiah 42, when there's a, there, there's a full chapter in uh, 42 pronouncing judgment about the, the ineptitude of the people and their, their blindness 
and their deafness towards God and how he's constantly been stretching out for them. But in chapter 43, it turns around immediately, and in verse 1, he says this. But now thus says Yahweh, your creator, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This, this text has um, several elements in it, and it's interesting. In, in, in 43, just in that turnaround, he pronounces a judgment on Israel for their persistent blindness and deafness. But then he says the resolution of that is it's, it's okay because I redeemed you. I'm your creator, O Jacob. That is Jacob's born name as the deceiver, the, the struggler, the, the, the heel grabber. But he who formed you, now the one that recreated you and made you and changed you, do not fear, Israel, because I have redeemed you. And in that redemption, I have called you by my name. You are mine. I've renamed you into what I will make you in your redemption. Israel, the one who strives with God. And I've redeemed you in doing that. And I've called you my own. I've called you to myself. You belong to me. We cannot be more than what God has called us to be. But we should be everything that God has called us to be. And by God calling you and identifying you as one of his that is the highest calling you can have. You can't have a greater title. You can't belong more than that. In John chapter 10, Jesus is giving a long teaching about the problem of these uh, spiritual leaders not understanding anything and not belonging to this people that God is calling to himself. And he simply says it this way. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Jesus is the shepherd, and he calls. And the sheep hear his voice, they recognize his voice, but he also calls them by name. He calls them out from amongst the other sheep because they belong to him. He says, the problem is that you don't belong to me, and you don't recognize my voice. So that's why you don't come to me. And so by hearing the word of God, and by hearing our names called, and by being summoned out from among the people, God is calling us to himself, but more importantly than he's just beckoning us, he's also saying, you belong to me. You're mine. That is a title and a role that we can't ask for, but it's one that was bestowed on us. As God's people, we are called out. We're called by name, we're called for a purpose, and we're called on purpose that we can fulfill those things. Romans chapter 8, and I'll close with this, says this. That all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit adopting us to the Father that we can call God our own. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children than heirs. That's the calling. That's the title. That's the name he's given to you. So if children, then we're heirs. That's the implication there. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray.